common myth about self-injury is that it's a behavior that only teenagers and young adults engage in. As we've discussed in this podcast to date, non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, is not restricted to any one particular gender, race, ethnicity, culture, or geographical location in the world. Adults self-injure too, including those above age 40. But what is the prevalence of self-injury among adults over age 40? And among those over age 40 with a history of self-injury, what differentiates those who report having stopped self-injuring from those who continue to self-injure? How do they differ from those under age 25 who self-injure, including related to suicidal thoughts and behaviors? To answer these questions and to talk about the most common reasons people over age 40 give for stopping self-injury, I am joined today, all the way from Australia, by Dr. Sarah Swanell. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Sarah Swanell started her career in psychology and research, working as a senior researcher in psychiatry at the University of Queensland in Australia from 2005 to 2014, where she now holds an academic title of lecturer. She has 15 years of clinical experience across a variety of settings, including private practice, community mental health, and acute inpatient and private psychiatric hospitals. In her private practice, Dr. Swanell specializes in working with individuals presenting with borderline personality disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and dissociative disorders, which often includes individuals who engage in non-suicidal self-injury. In her spare time, she enjoys riding her road bike, reading, and spending time with her two young children. Welcome, Dr. Swanell. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to be here and, and very honored to be part of your very popular and informative and really important show. Thank you for the kind words. People are always interested in, in learning how we became, or we as researchers and clinicians, have become interested in researching and treating non-suicidal self-injury. So I ask every guest at the beginning of every episode, how did you first become interested in researching and treating non-suicidal self-injury? It kind of happened by chance. I graduated my psychology degree at the end of 2004, and I really wanted to focus on research before working clinically with clients. At around the time I was graduating, a research position with Professor Graham Martin at the University of Queensland became available. And I'd actually applied to work with him 12 months earlier, but had been unsuccessful. So this time I was successful and I got a position with him and his research interest at the time was non-suicidal self-injury. So that quickly became my research interest. Luckily, I was interested in that area anyway, so it was a really good fit. But I think the depth of understanding that I've accumulated is uh, largely due to my work with Professor Martin. Well, I know most of your work now is clinically. You do clinical work more in your private practice than research now. But in 2016, you and Dr. Martin had co-authored a paper that really led to this interest in me interviewing you today. And most of the time we talk about self-injury among young people, adolescents and young adults. But people over the age of 40 also self-injure. I really would love for us to talk about this over 40 age group. I know you work with adults and you see individuals over the age of 40 who also have self-injured or currently self-injure. What is the lifetime prevalence of self-injury among adults age 40 years and older? 
Yeah, the research paper that you um, are mentioning came out of my PhD, which was a quite a large epidemiological study of um, individuals in the Australian community. And we interviewed individuals right from the age of 10 up until the age of 100. Our study is probably the biggest in the world to have looked at non-suicidal self-injury in the community across the age range. The 2016 journal article was just one publication that arose out of that study. We named that study the Anessi study for short, so it's a nice little nickname for that. Data was collected in 2008, so our publication in 2016 was a little bit, you know, eight years later. What we found was that there was a lifetime prevalence of 3.8% among our respondents aged 40 years and over. And that was 238 respondents out of 6,263 respondents aged 40 years and over. So this is data from 2008 and you published it in 2016. Do you think those numbers have changed over the course of those eight years? And actually now here we are 14, 15 years later. That's a very good question. There has been other community studies completed since we published our study. Neither of them have been as big as our study and none of them have been in Australia. But the lifetime prevalence found in those other studies is actually quite similar to what we found in our study where the data was collected in 2008. So my sense is that the prevalence has probably not increased over time amongst that age group. I think during the the 1990s and in the early between 2000 and 2010, that was really when research on non-suicidal self-injury took off and it was becoming, people were becoming more knowledgeable about the issue. And I think at that time, it seems like the prevalence was increasing but in actuality, it was just that we were getting better at researching it and asking the right questions. And therefore, people were responding and telling us the honest truth about their experience of self-injury. So, no, I I don't think it has increased. And I, I don't necessarily think it has really increased between, say, the 1980s. And now it's just the way that we research it. And there's a lot more awareness about self-injury in the community these days. Do you find that in your clinical work, you're seeing more individuals, more adults who self-injure than before? I would say it's pretty consistent. The biggest change I think I would see is that people are more open about the fact that they self-injure. And that might be because they know that that is an area of interest for me. So they feel comfortable in communicating that to me. Maybe that's not the case with other therapists. But certainly there hasn't been any change that I've noticed in the frequency of self-injury among my my clients. And probably over 50% of my clients have either a history of self-injury or are currently self-injuring. I know there's a bimodal age of onset of self-injury. So 13, 14 years old is the typical age of onset for engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, followed by another peak of onset during young adult college age. We don't really hear much about people starting self-injury in later life, even, I mean, I don't want to call 40 years old later in life, but how, <laughs> later than 13, 14 or college age for sure. But we'll talk yeah. in another episode about, you know, those that are much older, but how often do people begin self-injuring for the first time at age 40 and later? Do we know that? It is actually quite rare 
that we find people first self-injuring at age 40 and later. As you say, people more commonly start self-injuring in the adolescence and that second peak is in young adulthood. In our national study, our average age of onset was 18.9 years. So that was amongst the entire sample. And among the individuals aged 40 and over, only 7.6% first self-injured at age 40 or later. So that's a, a very tiny percentage of those who are still injuring in their 40s that actually commenced injuring at age 40 or after. I'm not really aware of any other research that's looked at that variable, so I can't really speak to whether uh, there's other knowledge and information out there about the frequency of people commencing self-injury at 40 or older. And I was going to say at such a late age, but I'm older than 40, so <laughs> I won't say that. I won't say that's a late age. <laughs> well, I, and I turned 40 actually a week from today, which by the time this episode airs, I'll, I'll, I'll be 40, so... <laughs> <laughs> I think also on reflection, the people that did in our study anyway, report age of onset 40 and over, I would say if we had have looked more carefully and comprehensively at their histories, we would have found, I think, that there was some other type of self-destructive behaviour going on in their history that preceded the non-suicidal self-injury. So workaholism, drug and alcohol use, eating disorders, excessive exercise are all ways that people cope with difficult emotions that are not necessarily defined as non-suicidal self-injury. We obviously didn't look any deeper into other methods that these individuals may have been engaging in prior to age 40. But my sense and also my clinical experience tells me that that is very much likely the case with this group. I don't think they're necessarily any different to those who started earlier in terms of psychological variables. That's an important point because, yeah, we think about the term self-harm and I conceptualize it as an umbrella term under which are the behaviors that you just mentioned, like substance misuse, eating disorder behavior, and other self-harming types of behavior. So those, what you're saying, are typically present prior to age 40 for those who actually began engaging in non-suicidal self-injury after age 40? Exactly, yes. That's my sense and my guess, although I don't have any data to back that up apart from what I see clinically and I haven't collected any data systematically regarding those things. I think that uh, for those who start self-injuring age 40 and over, something in their environment or in their life has changed so that they no longer engage in their habitual self-destructive or self-harming behaviour, whatever that may have been, and then they choose to start engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. One example of a catalyst that can lead to self-injuring at such a late age is an admission to a psychiatric hospital and seeing other people engaging in non-suicidal self-injury and kind of learning for the first time that this is a way that I can regulate my emotions so I might give it a go and then that might feel for that person that it's a helpful way to regulate their emotions so they continue using that behaviour in contrast to maybe the behaviours that they'd used up until that time. There is utility in psychiatric admissions for the most part, but there are also some risks, and I think that might be one of the risks. Psychiatric inpatient admissions aren't always the best thing, but oftentimes 
they are. But 7% of individuals that report having self-injured over the age 40 had their first onset, their first episode after age 40 is really interesting. And I think you had mentioned about the mean age of onset of your entire sample is around 18 years old. But compared to young adults who self-injure, is there a difference in age of onset for those who are age 40 and above who self-injure? Absolutely. So we found that the average age of onset for those age 40 and above was higher than those who were younger. In our study, the average age of onset for those age 40 and older was 25 years. Just comparing that to a younger age group, so for example, the age group 20 to 24, their average age of onset was 15 years old. If you look back at the data in the various age groups, you find that those self-injuring in those older age groups did progressively start self-injuring at a later age than those who um, are self-injuring in the younger age groups. Although, even though the average age of onset for those age 40 and above was 25, 40% started self-injuring after age 25, which is a surprisingly high percentage. So we still have 60% of those age 40 and above that started self-injuring at 25 years or, or younger, but 40%, that's almost half, actually started self-injuring after age 25, which is late, you know, in, in comparison to what we generally know about non-suicidal self-injury. I can't, I can't necessarily explain the reasons or the causes for that, and I haven't come across any research that has looked into that variable as to why the age of onset is perhaps later. That really kind of flies in the face of what the common perception of self-injury being like a teenage problem. But then here we have two out of five 40-year-olds and plus having started self-injuring after the age of 25. So I guess that's still young adulthood, but no longer typically college age. Yeah, I wonder how many people that we have listening that fall within that category in that age range. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be very interesting to learn more about those people who perhaps started self-injuring at a bit of a later age and what their history was like in terms of how they managed their emotions leading up to the age when they did start using self-injury as a way to do that. As I said before in my private practice, for those who are a little bit older and started self-injuring outside of that usual age bracket of adolescence, generally have utilized some other way to manage their emotions that was not necessarily an adaptive way and then discovered self-injury in some way and started to do that at a later age. Like a progression of self-harm behaviors or risky behaviors, perhaps? I'm not sure if it's a progression. It, it might just be a change. So an eating disorders, for example, behaviors that are usually contained to the adolescent and young adulthood age range. And then when a person perhaps starts working or starts a career and they can no longer maintain the seriousness of those purging or restricting behaviors, but they still need to manage their emotions some way and they haven't yet learned any adaptive ways to manage those emotions, that might then be a catalyst for them choosing to self-injure because they might be able to self-injure in a way that doesn't get in the way of their performance at work and self-injury is a lot, a lot easier to hide than potentially not an eating disorder such as bulimia, but definitely if you're restricting and you're underweight, that's difficult to hide. 
and in a professional capacity, a person who still needs to manage their emotions, they probably don't want other people to know that they're engaging in maladaptive coping mechanisms to manage their feelings. I'm not sure if we have the data on this, but among those age 40 and above who have self-injured, what differentiates those who report having stopped self-injuring from those who continue to self-injure? Yeah, so there is not all uh, that much data on this question. We did ask a couple of questions to those who were age 40 and above who were self-injuring, and we compared some psychological variables between those who are self-injuring and those who had stopped. We didn't find any demographic differences between the two groups, which is really important to consider, especially for clinicians and people who are treating those who self-injure, in that it's not a women's issue. It's not a certain age issue. It's not people from a certain socio-demographic issue. There's no demographic differences there. But the two psychological variables that we found were those who were continuing to self-injure had higher levels of overall general psychological distress and a much higher tendency to blame themselves during stressful times. That whole self-blame piece is really interesting to me. I think I mentioned in a recent episode my own dissertation research when I was in graduate school, and I looked specifically among adolescents, not older adults like this, but exploring the role of forgiveness in non-suicidal self-injury and found that, yeah, people, or at least young people who self-injure have no problem forgiving other people is themselves. And so there's that self-blame that they can't get over and so they hold that against themselves. And the lower self-forgiveness that they have, the more likely they are to self-injure more frequently. That's a very interesting finding and um, reminds me of one of the other publications that came out of this large epidemiological study that we did. We looked at the link between childhood maltreatment and self-injury and self-blame was a very strong mediator of that relationship. Those who had experienced child maltreatment and were very likely to blame themselves were much more likely to engage in self-injury than those who had experienced maltreatment and were less likely to blame themselves. So that points to the very important role of shame in the causation of engaging in any type of self-destructive behaviour. Unfortunately, shame historically has not been a variable that has been researched all that frequently. I think that's starting to change and I think that's a very important area for people to start to look at and think about how we can devise interventions around self-blame and shame to decrease the self-injurious and self-harming behaviours. Yeah, and I love the self-compassion work and the self-compassion research that's really developing or burgeoning in the field, and I think that's a very promising area. Well, we know that self-injury is different. Non-suicidal self-injury is different from suicidal thoughts, suicidal behaviors, yet those who self-injure are at increased risk for later considering and attempting suicide. What is the prevalence of suicidal thoughts and attempts among those who self-injure and are age 40 and above? compared to those who self-injure that are under age, say, 25? I would say that in both groups, those age 40 and above and those age under 25 have very high levels of suicidal thoughts and a much higher frequency of suicide attempts compared to those who don't self-injure at all. In, in our study, we found that, in fact, there were more individuals under 25 
and self-injuring who scored in the high suicidal range. So there was 80% of those under 25 scored very high in suicidal ideation, whereas only 56% of those 40 and over who were also self-injuring scored in the same high range. Both groups obviously are scoring very high in suicidal ideation compared to people who don't self-injure. And that speaks to the fact that self-injury is a very significant risk factor for suicide attempts and completions. But the difference there in percentage was statistically significant with the younger group being more than three times as likely to report those high levels of suicidal ideation compared with those who were 40 and over. And we didn't ask any follow-up questions about that suicidal ideation. And the reason for that is something that we haven't really explored. Do you have any thoughts of why that might be, that difference? I actually don't know. And I've Potentially, those who are age 40 and over have more responsibilities in terms of their work, career, family, finances. And so suicidal ideation and the option of a suicide attempt, I think, is it's less of an option for those who are age 40 and over compared to those who are age 25 and under. Those who are age 40 and over have I think, in my experience anyway, many more things to stay alive for, but I don't know. That's just my guess. Reasons for living. I know that's a lot of we talk about in DBT. Yeah. I wonder if maturation has anything to do with it. Just living life longer. I wonder having lived and learned many more life lessons and maturing in our ways of coping over time has anything to do with that. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that we become much more accepting of life and the negative aspects of life and the pain and the suffering that is inevitable as we go through life. We become more accepting of that. And even though self-injury might still be happening in order to cope with the big emotions, it's maybe not as catastrophic as what it might be perceived as for those who are a little bit younger and less accepting of those parts of life that we don't want and we don't like and we feel uncomfortable with. For most of uh, those at age 40 and above, their onset was at a younger age. So I imagine duration in years of engaging in the behavior is much greater than those that are younger. And so they have used it, like you had referenced, as a way to cope. And so maybe that's a non-suicidal self-injury does well for them in coping. And so there's a less likelihood of endorsing suicidal thoughts because self-injury is a more helpful way for them to cope, even if it's not necessarily a healthy way to cope. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, For many people, it's proven to be very reliable and very effective for a very long time. That's also a, a very good point that you bring up in terms of the longevity of using the behaviour of non-suicidal self-injury over time. I know that Thomas Joyner's work and subsequent work after that talks about self-injury desensitising a person to subsequent suicide attempts, both in terms of the fear of death and also the pain associated with self-injury. And in our research, we did find that 38% of the older group reported a lifetime suicide attempt, which was higher than the 28% in the younger group. Even though that difference was not significant, that perhaps speaks to the fact that those who have self-injured for a longer period of time are perhaps less scared, more desensitised to the idea of an actual suicide attempt. But again, 
it's not surprising that the older group reported a higher prevalence given that older age by default provides more exposure to life stresses and opportunity for an attempt. So just given the fact that they had more years in which to engage in a suicide attempt may account for that increased percentage as opposed to the desensitization by utilizing self-injury, if that makes sense. That makes sense. That's fair. At first, I was thinking, well, that's interesting that they have a lower likelihood than the younger age group to experience suicidal thoughts, but a higher likelihood of attempting suicide. But by sheer number of years and chance and longevity, then they're more likely to. That makes more sense. Also, the, the suicide attempt, the age at first suicide attempt for those who are 40 and above and self-injuring was still quite young. The average age at first suicide attempt for the 40 plus was 23 years. So the suicide attempts were still occurring at a younger age, not necessarily in in their 30s, 40s, 50s or above. Hmm. Although the average age at the first suicide attempt for the younger group, the group who are aged 20 to 24 was 16 years. So those who are self-injuring in the younger age groups tended to have an even earlier first age of suicide attempt compared to those in older age groups. And these are all those who self-injure, those with a history of non-suicidal self-injury, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you looked at adults age 40 and above with a history of self-injury who had ceased engaging in the behavior for at least the previous two years. What are the most common reasons they gave for stopping self-injury? Interestingly, the most common reason was that they had gotten over it (laughs) or just grown up. So there's a bit of self-stigmatization, I think, in those answers, which is a little bit concerning. And I would be guessing that although the respondents are saying that the reason they stopped is because they had grown up or gotten over it, my sense is that there's probably other reasons for stopping self-injury that perhaps they're unable to articulate or that they don't really understand. The second most common reason was talking to a mental health professional, which is positive for us mental health professionals who are hoping that we're helping people (laughs) stopping (laughs) self-harm and uh, learning better ways to cope with stress and receiving support from other people are the, the other two very common reasons which is great because I would definitely be suggesting that interventions for self-injury focus on learning better ways to cope with stress. And one of those better ways is to improve the level of social support that you have in family and friends and, and, and also perhaps the support you have from professionals. I appreciate your comment about the self-stigmatization because to say that I just grew up, someone that's over 40, age 40 right now, who currently self-injures could be listening to that and saying, what, I haven't grown up? And it's probably, like you said, much more nuanced than that. Maybe when they say they grew up, they just happen to learn healthier ways to cope or they found something more useful and just didn't think of it as the reason why they stopped self-injuring. So yeah, I want to make sure that we don't stigmatize anyone, even in the over 40 group. Absolutely. I I would never communicate that to any person who is currently self-injuring. I would never communicate the message that they do need to grow up and they need to get over it in order to stop self-injuring. I think if you communicate that message to anybody who's engaging in self-injury, that will increase their frequency of self-injury because it just adds to the self-blame and the shame that is often a a huge causative factor in the self-injury. 
And we know from uh, numerous research studies that teaching people effective coping skills, how to regulate their emotions, how to tolerate their distress, learning and utilising those skills has a direct relationship with a reduction in self-injury. So it's not about growing up or getting over it. It's about learning new skills. And a lot of people just didn't learn those skills in their families of origin, which is is not their fault whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I, I am encouraged that the second most common reason this group, those that are age 40 and above, stop self-injuring is because they talk to a mental health professional. Although I think the numbers were still relatively low, like around 26%. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, a huge proportion, the majority of people who engage in self-injury don't seek help. And the help seeking decreases over time as people get older. And I, I think one of the reasons for that is that stigma You were speaking before about self-injury being delegated to teenagers and adolescents, and it's it's a teenager's problem. It's it's an adolescent's problem. A person who maybe is a young adult or an over uh, or an older adult feel like perhaps they can't seek help because why are they still engaging in self-injury when it's a problem for younger people? The sense of stigma and shame is hugely increased and enhanced for that age group. To attest to that, yeah, we've had listeners in their 30s and 40s who've self-injured who've essentially said that, who've reached out after finding the podcast. So I really wanted to record this episode with them in mind to know, say, no, you're not alone. It's not just a teenage issue that we recognize all ages, people from all ages, all races, ethnicities across the globe self-injure or have self-injured or can self-injure. Yes, absolutely. And and I think from my perspective in my clinical practice, as I said earlier, I have over 50% of individuals who are currently self-injuring or have self-injured in the past. And I only see adults. The average age that I see is probably, I have never done the stats, but probably around 30 years of age. I don't see teenagers, I don't see adolescents, and my patients uh, range in age from about 20 all the way up to over 60 years old. And I find um, the self-injury amongst and across that entire age range. In graduate school, one of my first clients that I had seen and treated that had engaged in non-suicidal self-injury, I want to say they were in their 40s or 50s. So yeah, it's not as uncommon as we might It's more uncommon than adolescents, but not unheard of. Yeah, that's right. The recent study I think that you are aware of is the 2019 study by Troia and colleagues. It was a qualitative study that looked at how older adults in England, aged 60 years and above, experienced self-harm, really looked at that issue of self-stigmatization in depth. Our study didn't necessarily do that, and I haven't found all that many other studies which have looked at sense of self-stigmatization and shame around self-injury amongst older adults. So it's a really important study, and I think it's contributed some really important findings to the field because it talks about, and they they did some in-depth interviews with these individuals who talked about how as they get older, it it got much harder to talk about self-injury because it was seen as a teenage behaviour and the shame and embarrassment led them to be very secretive about it, not telling anybody and not seeking help. 
which is in turn a very risky thing to be secretive and not seek help for that, given that it's such a a strong risk factor for subsequent suicide. Turning back to your paper, I noticed you had included overdosing as a form of non-suicidal self-injury, which is typically not included in the definition of NSSI. Of course, the definition of self-injury is imperfect and can miss behaviors such as overdosing without suicidal intent. But what difference in your results do you think you might have found had you excluded overdose as a form of non-suicidal self-injury? That's a a very good question. And I think generally people who are engaging in overdose are not necessarily 100% intent on completing suicide, but they are much more ambivalent about the outcome of that overdose compared to people who engage in other types of non-suicidal self-injury. So we thought about whether to include overdose or not very carefully. And we came to the conclusion that we would include it, but we would also record whether overdose was the only method of self-injury when the individuals did report overdose as a method. In the study for individuals over 40, there were only three individuals who reported overdosing as their only form of self-harm. All of the others who reported overdosing also reported different methods such as engaging in cutting or burning or self-battery, etc. So in that sense, I don't think including those three individuals made all that much difference. In addition, in my clinical work, I have seen numerous cases of clients who engage in overdosing specifically to self-injure with absolutely no intent to cause themselves with absolutely no intent to die at all. So I thought it was important to include overdosing as a method so that we're not excluding those people who are legitimately engaging in non-suicidal self-injury via overdose, even though more commonly overdose is used in suicide attempts and in ambivalent attempts. That is tricky, especially if there is no intent for dying, but there is intent to cause harm to oneself, whether it's their digestive tract, their liver, or some other internal tissue, internal organ, which we can't necessarily assess or measure just from an outward perspective. Just an aside to that, I have a patient that I work with now who engages in overdosing and ingesting non-edible items as her only form of self-injury. And that generally, I I guess it is included in, in a general definition of NSSI, but it is quite uncommon. And I think it's important to make sure that we capture all the different types and ways that people engage in this behavior because people can get very creative. Yeah, that would be foreign body ingestion, or FBI is what Dr. Barry Walsh, who he calls it, and we interviewed Dr. Walsh back in season one, I think is episode 12, on atypical severe self-injury. And that could be considered an atypical type of self-injury, the foreign body ingestion, where someone intentionally consumes a non-edible item in order to cause harm to themselves. Yeah. So for listeners that are curious to learn more about that, a little plug for episode 12 with Dr. Walsh. (laughs) I think that's really important for um, also clinicians to be aware of because when we're asking clients about their self-injurious behaviours and the methods that they use, I'm not sure that the majority of clinicians would think about ingesting foreign objects and therefore perhaps wouldn't ask the clients if they were engaging in that kind of behaviour. 
And in turn, I think most clients would be very embarrassed and ashamed to admit that they're engaging in that kind of self-injurious behaviour because it is quite uncommon. Yeah, it's uncommon and often will require medical attention. So I think in medical centres and institutions that this might be more common that they would see. Is there anything we missed or that you would like to add that we haven't talked about related to non-suicidal self-injury in the overage 40 group? The only thing that came to mind for me was I also work with clients who have dissociative disorders and clients with dissociative disorders in that age range are more likely to engage in non-suicidal self-injury and continue to engage in non-suicidal self-injury as long as their dissociative disorder goes untreated. So I think in that age range, it's also important to assess for dissociation. And unfortunately, the majority of clinicians and mental health professionals don't have adequate training in the assessment and treatment of dissociation. Yeah, I know self-injuring because of dissociation or to end dissociation is a risk factor for attempting suicide. I know some research has shown that. So that's an important point. I appreciate you bringing that up. Bringing everything together, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents of, say, adolescents or children who self-injure? I suppose what I could say is that this behaviour is not unheard of and it's very important for parents and loved ones to understand why their children or their loved ones are engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. So improving knowledge, I would say, and obtaining some psychoeducation around the types of self-injury and the function of self-injury would go a long way in helping and supporting their loved ones as they struggle with this behavior. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether researchers or other clinicians? There's a few things that I would mention. It's important to recognize that people who self-injure often don't have insight into why they're self-injure. And so asking direct questions regarding the function of the behavior is sometimes unhelpful and it requires more of an in-depth conversation and some detective work in terms of working out exactly why the person is engaging in that behavior. And it's very important to work out the function of the behavior because that speaks to the intervention and how to resolve continuing to engage in that. I also wanted to speak again to the comment that our participants made in terms of the reasons why they stopped self-injuring and they said they just grew up or got over it. I really wanted to stress that if a person does communicate those as reasons for stopping, it will be very beneficial for you to point out that it's probably the accumulation of additional learning, especially new coping skills, perhaps changes in their values, priorities and responsibilities as a person gets older. And it's not necessarily about just the passage of time, because if we do endorse those those reasons, if we do endorse the reasons of growing up and getting over it, that is very stigmatizing and it is communicating to that individual that at some point there was something wrong with them. And I wonder if they were to actually have a lapse or relapse and re-engage in the behavior, how shameful they might feel because they thought they had outgrown it and just matured. But yeah, I can imagine there could be a lot of shame. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Similar to that, I think it's important for clinicians to always make the assumption that people are doing the best they can. I think when you're a clinician who is not all that familiar with non-suicidal self-injury and you have a a client engaging in that behaviour, it can not make sense to you. And um, as a clinician, you can wonder why that person didn't just do X, Y or Z have a cup of tea, have a shower, do some relaxation, which is they're really common ways that clinicians suggest to clients to cope with urges to self-injure, often not helpful at all. And then to make the assumption that that individual is being resistant or not trying, that is a a very corrosive attitude to have towards people who self-injure. And in fact, if you do have that attitude towards those who self-injure, it can increase the frequency of self-injury in that person. To balance that, it's also very important that clinicians, while they do fully accept the individual as they are right now, that needs to be balanced with change is also required. And the change can be in the form of acquiring new knowledge and new skills. It's not in the form of the person becoming a better person or the person growing up in some random way or vague way. That's so good. I'm reminded of all behavior serves a function. And I'm thinking about your comment related to some individuals not even knowing why they've engaged in self-injury. And in episode 10, we talked with Dr. Peggy Andover about the treatment for self-injurious behaviors or TSIB for short, and really doing a great, excellent functional analysis of the behavior and doing a chain analysis or looking at some of the activating events, triggering antecedents that preceded the behavior that the person might not have even realized was connected. I think that's really important in treatment as well. Absolutely, most definitely. And in that space of doing a functional behavioral analysis or a chain analysis, the clinician has to be accepting and validating. Otherwise, the client is going to feel too ashamed and stigmatized to discuss openly the reasons for the behavior and the things that led up to the behavior and the actual behavior and also the positive consequences of the behavior, which is another thing I think I would emphasize to clients who engage in self-injury. Self-injury, as we know, is an effective way to regulate emotions and it's immediate. So as individuals learn new ways of coping, it's very, very important to radically accept that those new ways may not give as immediate relief or as complete relief as the self-injury has given them over their lifetime, especially if they've been engaging in that behavior for a really long time, but that they can have confidence that over time as they practice the new coping mechanisms, the new coping mechanisms will become easier and easier as their neural networks lay down more well-worn tracks. Finally, based on today's conversation, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury, especially individuals in their 40s and above? I would suggest for those individuals, especially 40 and above, to carefully and selectively find a mental health professional or a person who is very understanding and educated and trained in non-suicidal self-injury to assist them in working out what the functions of the behaviour is and coming up with some alternative, more effective coping mechanisms. 
it is important to choose a professional that is understanding and is educated and trained because unfortunately, even within the mental health field, we do have clinicians who can increase that stigma and potentially make clients feel worse. So I would encourage individuals to try to seek out a therapist who does have that understanding and training And I would encourage them to see if they can even have a a short chat with the therapist prior to making a commitment to seeing that therapist for a formal session or even speaking to the administration or reception and asking about that therapist's experience and training in self-injury so that you can be confident that this person will be validating and accepting and they will be able to provide you with some really effective ways of coping. The therapies that I would suggest for coping with non-suicidal self-injury or the therapies I would suggest for treating non-suicidal self-injury would be the CBT type therapies and DBT is my treatment of choice. I believe that group-based DBT interventions are more effective than individual skills training. So I would encourage people who are self-injuring to go and find a group if they can. Not necessary. You can also develop skills and learn skills in individual sessions but there are other group factors which it will enhance your experience and your progress if you are learning skills effective skills in a group format and then also keep in mind that there might be a phase to your therapy phase one might be behavioral stability stopping the self-injury But after that self-injury is stopped, you might find that there are big emotions still being experienced, which require additional therapy and may require looking back at things that have happened in your life that need processing or talking through. I'm so glad I was able to get a hold of you all the way in Australia as I'm here in the U.S. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Swanell, on the podcast and for sharing about your your research in such an unresearched area, as well as giving us some ideas for future research. And thank you for sharing your clinical expertise that I think those in their 40s and above that self-injure will hopefully find really helpful. So thank you again for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.